0: Let's read uh, God's Word together. Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is uh, God's word. Having read that together, I wonder how you would describe what you've just read. Um, Because I want you to think of this as a love letter. Have you ever imagined that as being a love letter? Because what this is, is a message to God's people And it's a reminder from God to his people of the height, breadth and depth of God's love towards you and towards me. And as God writes these words through the prophet Isaiah, he wants to capture the extent of his love. How he was willing to submit himself to pain and humiliation on that cross so that you and I could be with him eternally. But the surprising thing about this love letter is that it's written to people that aren't that lovely. It's written to a people that are unfaithful, who have failed spectacularly to be the faithful servant of God which they had been called to do. And the same unfaithfulness that uh, the people of Israel struggled with at this time is also our struggle We look at our lives and we see the scars of sin. We see lives that have these kind of moments of opposition to God and his plan. Uh, We have these times in our life where we see uh, that we want to exalt ourselves uh, uh, and push God and his uh, longing for our life down away from ourselves because we too struggle with God's unfaithfulness And that's our state, whether or not we accept that. You know, those times where we uh, pursue greed, where we selfishly gossip about others so that we can uh, raise ourselves up. Uh, The times that we uh, talk behind people's backs. You know, there's so many ways by which we show how unfaithful we are to God and his good uh, rule in our hearts. And these are all the indicators. These are all the signposts that we are like the people of Israel in Isaiah's time. We are unfaithful to God. That we are the ones who walk away. That we are the ones who despise God's love. But this chapter, though it's honest and real and authentic, it's a message of hope. It's a message that there is hope beyond the unfaithfulness of our actions and of our lives. Because where is our hope? Because we see that there will be a faithful servant, someone who will be completely focused and faithful to God and who will do the things that we fail to do, who, who gives a devotion to God and who is able to help us and who is able to bring us back towards God. And so we find hope. We find the possibility of relief from the heavy burden of guilt um, through the work of the, of the suffering servant in this chapter. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look together just at a, at a little part of this, this chapter, verses 4 to 6. They're the kind of the center verses of, of this chapter, and they're the key p- part of this chapter on which everything else hinges. And so what we're going to see in these uh, kind of couple of verses is this. We're going to see how the servant becomes our scapegoat. And then we're going to see how the servant blesses us with peace and healing. So the servant becomes our scapegoat is the first thing that we're going to discover. Now Dwight Eisenhower famously said that the search for a scapegoat is the easiest of all hunting expeditions. And it's so true, isn't it? We all love to find out and to hunt out a scapegoat for every situation that we find ourselves in where we've fallen short. Um, you know, blaming somebody else. You know the blame game. You know, it was your fault that I did this. You know, you're to blame. You know, I was getting angry coming here today. Why was I getting angry? Because the traffic lights are so slow on Leith Walk. I just get angry at this object? You know, I was blaming them for being slightly behind time. It's ridiculous. But we do that all the time in our lives, don't we? We try to find a scapegoat, someone or something to blame for the way we're feeling or for the actions we've taken or for the things we've said. And this idea of of the scapegoat is found within the Bible. It's a biblical idea. Now, uh, back in the time of Leviticus, uh, much before the time of Isaiah, what would happen is this. You'd have the high priest and he would symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto a goat and that goat became known as the scapegoat and what the high priest would do he would lay his hands on on the goat and then once the sins of the people had been confessed the high priest would then put the goat out of the community never to be seen again and it was as if it was a picture as if the sin was gone And we could move on. It was no longer part of the community. And so, you know, we're not those who kind of lay hands on goats anymore to try and find forgiveness of sins or to try to uh, kind of remove the guilt from our own lives, do we? But we do all sorts of other things, trying to deal with our own guilt, trying to move guilt from us uh, away uh, to someone or somewhere else. You know you know, the arguments, you get angry, you snap back, it's your fault, you know, you got us into this mess. Why do we do this? Why do we always seek to blame someone else? Why can we not accept blame so often when we've done something wrong? I think it's because we cannot bear the weight of knowing that we're guilty. And so because we can't bear the weight of our own guilt, we try to shift it off because it's just too heavy. And we try to pass it on to someone else and to something else. Because deep down we know that we're guilty and we need to deal with it. And so the way that we instinctively try to do that is to, is to find someone else who will ch- take the weight of our guilt. But when we do that, what happens? When you blame someone else, what happens? You only cause tension and disharmony within those relationships as often with those people that we love the most that become our more favoured scapegoats. But more than that, though, what happens is this. The Bible guides us to consider that when we do wrong, the primary impact of our sin is not on those around us, but it's in God himself in Romans three. You know, it's on our relationship with God which suffers the most when we sin. And it's into the gloom of this reality, into the sinful state which exists within each one of us, that the prophet Isaiah opens up with the word, what's the word in verse 12, the very first word? Behold. Behold, he wants us to fix our gaze from off ourselves and off one another. And he wants us to fix our gaze and fix our eyes on what God is up to in this chapter. Isaiah is getting us to gaze in the direction of God, of the servant of God. And he is pointing us towards a true scapegoat, a scapegoat who can deal with the weight of our guilt, who can take the blame but in his loving work of offering himself up as a scapegoat for others, the unfaithful people of Israel at this time and the unfaithful people of God, how do they respond to this scapegoat that's come to take the blame from them? What do they do? Well, verse three, what happens? They despise and reject him. He becomes a man of sorrows. He is utterly repugnant to the people who he has come to uh, take the blame from. So repugnant that they refuse to look to them. He is held by utter contempt by those around him. His treatment at the hands of others is appalling. It's shocking. But what strikes most deeply What should provoke outrage within us is the treatment that he receives from God. Look at verse 5. The innocent is being crushed by the Lord. He is executed for the wrongdoings of others. What's going on? Is this the work of a divine monster who delights in punishing the weak and the vulnerable? What's God up to? And to really grasp what God is up to, we need to fast forward 700 years to the cross of Jesus. And as we look upon the cross, uh, this passage is illuminated. And more clearly, as the Son of God himself becomes our scapegoat, the identity of the servant is revealed To the hearers at the time of Isaiah, it was clouded over. But the clouds would disperse, and the servant would be revealed as Jesus. Jesus himself would say this about his work. In Mark 10, he says this about himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on, uh, one of his followers, Paul, would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it dawns on us that the servant is not merely the victim of a great injustice, but the servant is God himself. The Lord elects himself to bear our guilty burdens. Look at how many times the word "our" is used in these couple of verses. He will take Our blame. He will take our guilt on his shoulders and he himself will pay the price. That's what verse 4 is all about. The servant is characterized by griefs and by sorrows, but they're not his own. It's not his own guilt. It's not his own grief. It's not his own sorrows. It's the sorrows, guilt, and grief of others. The wrongdoings that make us guilty before god must be punished justice must prevail and we know this instinctively ourselves how many of us will rightly become angry when we come from the supermarket to the car park and you see the great big scratch on the on the door and there's no note of confession that's that's anger that's outrage something someone needs to pay the price for this damage either I am going to pay the price for the damage or the one who's done it. And it's the same with God. He can't turn his eye away uh, to the sins that are being committed. They must be put right. Either God will pay the price or we will pay the price. And this is the great love of God. Out of love, God says, I will pay your price through Jesus. Jesus steps forward and takes upon himself the weight of our guilt. He pours out his soul to death in verse 12. And through this act of love, we can be released from the guilty burden and be declared righteous because of his work in verse 11. Uh, John Stott, uh, an old Christian thinker, said this about the work of Christ on the cross. Here is the glory of the cross. God, in his amazing grace, has dealt with his own holy hatred of sin in a way that rescues us from horrendous judgment. God chose to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of us and Christ was willing to pay that awful price. If you feel the weight of sin, the weight of your guilt, if you feel crushed by it, God invites you to find in Jesus the perfect scapegoat let him bear the weight and he will do this for us because he loves us and that love for us moved him to humbly walk the road to calvary to walk the road to the cross so that we can be free from the debt of unfaithfulness towards god and we can trust (laughs) him so the first thing we see is that jesus becomes our scapegoat And then second thing we're going to see is how the servant keeps blessing us. How the servant keeps blessing us. Now, imagine the situation. You are faced with crippling debt. Every card is maxed out and you have no means to repay any of the debt that is yours. But lo and behold, uh, that old forgotten relative has uh, not forgotten you and has put you into their will. And he has given you so much money that you no longer have any debt. And it's amazing. And you would have a really thankful heart because you've got no more debt. But even though the debt is paid, he hasn't given you any money to live on. And so you are debt-free, but you're a debt-free beggar because tomorrow when you need to buy something, you're back into debt. And so... God, though, doesn't just leave us as debt-free beggars, you know, paying the price of our uh, kind of sin. But he gives us more than that. He pays the full amount of our debt, absolutely. But he also makes us rich beyond all measure. And in this passage, we discover two ways uh, or two things that uh, God blesses us with. I don't know if you can see them in in those verses in verses four to six. What he does is he blesses us with peace is the first thing he blesses us with and then with healing. So look at verse five and the final little uh, verse there. And with his wounds we are healed. We receive uh, peace. That brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. So the first thing we receive is peace. Now, the word used here is the word shalom, shalom. And so the word here is not really primarily thinking about inner calm, although that might happen, you know, that peace, inner peace that we have. That might happen, but that's really not what is being described here. What's being described here is something much greater than that. It's the idea of complete flourishing, it's the idea of harmony in the whole created realm. Human is harmony with God and with one another and within ourselves. It's like the old Coke advert, living in the world in complete unison, but much, much better. You see, the totality of harmony that is being offered to God's people here comes through Jesus and his work on the cross. And if we humbly accept Jesus' offer to be our substitute, we move from hostility to friendship with God. We move into a place where we live in harmony with God. A place where we feel at home, where we can enjoy friendship, when we're completely at ease. You know, it's that kind of time where you have someone around and you know they're completely at ease in your house. How do you know they're completely at ease in your house? They probably take off their shoes and put their feet up on the sofa. I you know, I love it when someone does that in the house because they're completely at ease with the surroundings. And that's the kind of picture we have before us it's God's people completely at ease in his company. You know, we become children of the king and no longer are we treasonous rebels and so wonderfully the renewal of this loving relationship ultimately uh, will lead to a complete restoration of the entire cosmos when we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth it will be a place of total and complete harmony All things are being made ready for us to enjoy the fullness of peace. We get tastes of it here and now in in, in this life, don't we? We get little snippets. But one day we will feast on the fullness of that harmony in the new heavens and the new earth. So the first thing we receive is peace. And the second thing we receive is healing. In verse 5, by his wounds we are healed. Um, The healing here is primarily the healing of sin. Healing of the wounds of sin. And the healing process will be completed and will be perfect in that new heavens and earth. But till that time, but until that time... Jesus' work of sanctification, of transformation, of healing is going on, changing us from the inside out in the here and now. And as we change, as we're being sanctified, what's happening is we are more clearly uh, reflecting the loveliness of Jesus in every aspect of life. Previously, when we looked at the cross, we were like those who looked on contempt at Jesus and what his work was doing. But now we see the cross through different eyes. We no longer see Jesus as contemptible, but we see him as lovely. You know, gazing at the cross, we see Jesus in all his loveliness. But what else do we see? We also see the depth of our guilt. We see how our wrongdoings, we see how our sins wound jesus our sins wound jesus they crush jesus it leaves scars on him in verse six it oppresses and afflicts him in verse seven and our sin will kill jesus in verse nine that's what our sin does to jesus that's why we need to hate sin we need to hate sin Because of what it does to Jesus, the one who is lovely beyond all measure. As we look to the cross, our reaction must be to grieve over our sin and to move away from sinful patterns to confession and to struggle away from sin. Because what it does to Jesus. But how do we do this? How do we move away from sin? How might we struggle away from sin in the here and now? How might we hate our sin? Well, I think we can begin this process and we can start moving away from sin by dwelling a little more on the cross and on the loveliness of Jesus. In God's grace, he opened our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus on the cross. And as he reveals himself to us, as he shows himself to be lovely, let's linger there. Let's allow ourselves to pause for a little while and consider things more deeply. Because when we consider our sin, often we, we just think about it, you know, in the here and now, how we've sinned against someone else. But so often we forget to look and to see how our sin impacts on Jesus, how it impacted on him. And so we must be those who keep redirecting our inner compass to keep looking to Jesus and to the cross and to see how, what our sin has done to Jesus on the cross. Because sin is about our relationship with Jesus. And when we sin, we temporarily abandon our connection to him. Like sheep, we go astray, as it says in verse 6. And so knowing Jesus and reminding ourselves of his loveliness is what might help us shift ourselves towards increasing holiness. You know, our TV viewing might change. Our phone use might change. uh, The way we speak of others might begin to change. But it's only going to change as we begin to gaze towards Jesus and to see his loveliness. But moving away is messy and it's hard and it's not easy. And we will not complete that work till uh, we're gathered together and perfected. But as we walk these paths and these roads of this life, we need to keep looking to Jesus and understanding, first of all, that sin... uh, what sin does to him in all his loveliness. And so as we work with the spirit, we begin to dwell and to see and to allow ourselves to be shifted away from sin into holiness. But the other thing God has given us is this. He's given us a spirit to help us move away from sin. But he's also given us a community to support and to help us as well, hasn't he? And as a community, we need to I think stop pretending so often that things are fine because we're all struggling with sin, each one of us. And so talking about sin can't be off limits. Talking about our struggles with sin can't be uh, just kept uh, as private matters. We need to talk wisely with one another and helpfully. We need to consider where we might benefit from sharing something of our struggles with someone else and how we can support one another into greater uh, holiness, into increasing depth of relationship with Jesus. You know, we've got to think about who can we ask to pray for us as we struggle with a sinful pattern, for example. How are we, as those who may be... Uh, kind of someone might be sharing with us their struggles how might we encourage them on the road how might we call out signs of god's goodness in their life and how god is changing them Uh, you know one day the wounds of sin will be completely healed but until uh, until then we're we're on a journey moving towards greater likeness likeness of christ And so together, let's support and encourage one another on that road. Be an encouragement. Call out the work of God in one another. Take time to notice how God is working in the lives of others. And say, say, you know, I'm giving thanks to God for for his grace in your life. So Isaiah in this chapter opens us up to the possibility of enjoying a category-shattering love in Jesus. Jesus will become our scapegoat if we humbly come to him. And he will be a source of rich blessing to us in this life. And that will go on into eternity. Jesus is enough. His work is finished. And our contribution is, no, is not needed. Trust him because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for his love. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be those who gaze uh, at Jesus uh, a little longer each day, that we would see him in increasing loveliness. And when we see the loveliness of, of Jesus, we ask that you would help us to struggle away from sin and to struggle towards holiness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.